Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz again. This is going to be questions 6 through 10 in the Rheumatology Section 11 of Internal Medicine Essentials Medical Knowledge Self-Assessment Program for Students. Uh, this is uh, question number 6. A 38-year-old woman is evaluated for left knee pain that has been present for the past three weeks. Before onset, she had been preparing for a five-kilometer race by running approximately two miles each day, six days each week for the past six months. Walking upstairs makes the pain worse. She also notes pain at night. She has never had this pain before. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. There is tenderness to palpation located near the anteromedial aspect of the proximal tibia. A small amount of swelling is present at the insertion of the medial hamstring muscle. There is no medial or lateral joint line tenderness. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Iliotibial band syndrome. B. Patellofemoral pain syndrome. C. Pes anserine bursitis. Or D. Prepatellar bursitis. And I will give you a moment to contemplate your answer to that question. And yes, the answer is C, pes anserine bursitis. Uh, so this uh, patient's location of her pain and her history of overuse, which is uh, her six-day-a-week running for the last six months, are set up for an overuse uh, syndrome like pes anserine bursitis. The pain is uh, typically located along the anteromedial aspect of the proximal tibia, distal to the joint line of the knee, uh, and the pain is usually worse with climbing stairs and frequently worsens at night. So really here the clue is the overuse, uh, the fact that it's bothering her at night and with climbing stairs, and uh, particularly the location, which is, uh, as described, the anterior medial area. Iliotibial band syndrome is the wrong answer. Um, that's usually a, a knife-like lateral knee pain that occurs with vigorous flexion and extension activities of the knee, which is classically running. It's treated conservatively with rest and stretching exercises. Uh, this patient's presentation is not consistent with iliotibial band syndrome as her pain is located medial, not laterally. Also, the pain with iliotibial band syndrome is characteristically worsened with walking both up and down stairs, which this patient does not report. Uh, and as far as the uh, uh, patellofemoral uh, pain syndrome, I hope that um, you got this one, uh, did not answer that one, because you know that's the most common cause of knee pain in persons younger than age 45 years, and particularly in women. Uh, the pain is peripatellar and exacerbated by overuse, such as running, uh, descending stairs, or prolonged sitting. So the prolonged sitting is the sort of key with diagnosing prepatellar, or sorry, patellofemoral pain syndrome. And on examination, the pain is often uh, elicited by applying pressure on the patella, as described in previous questions in this uh, Internal Medicine Essentials book. And finally, patients with prepatellar bursitis present with pain in the anterior aspect of the knee. On examination, the swelling and tenderness uh, are to palpation, frequently present near the lower pole of the patella. So again, think about that one in these types of questions on the shelf or the board exam or whatever. 
is that they're going to describe a swelling. And it's usually going to be in somebody who's been working on their knees, such as a carpet layer, uh, housemaid, carpenter, and so forth. So the key point in this question is that the pain of pes answering bursitis is typically located along the anteromedial aspect of the proximal tibia, distal to the joint line of the knee, and characteristically worsens with steer, stair rather, <laughs> climbing, and as well as at night. Question number uh, seven. A 42-year-old woman is evaluated for a 10-day history of posterior and superior right shoulder pain that becomes worse with overhead activities. The patient recently painted her basement ceiling but reports no history of trauma. She has no arm weakness or paresthesia. She has been taking ibuprofen as needed for pain relief. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. There is no shoulder asymmetry and no tenderness to palpation of bony structures or soft tissue structures. There is full range of motion other than with internal rotation, which is limited by pain. And strength is 5 out of 5 throughout the right arm with sensation intact. She is able to slowly lower her extended arm from over her head to her side, a so-called negative drop arm test. Pain occurs with abduction of the right arm between 60 and 120 degrees. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, a, chromo, a chromioclavicular joint degeneration. B, adhesive capsulitis. C, rotator cuff impingement syndrome. Or D, rotator cuff tear. And I'll give you a moment to contemplate that one. So the answer here is actually C, which is a rotator cuff impingement syndrome. So really the key thing in this question is the history of what would essentially be an overuse type activity, which was painting the ceiling of her basement. Um, she presumably was using a roller or whatever, even a paintbrush would do this. Uh, she um, presents with pain in her shoulder that began after performing this activity, and her pain is most pronounced with abduction of her arm. On examination, her pain occurs between 60 and 120 degrees of abduction, which supports the diagnosis of rotator cuff tendonitis. So rotator cuff tendonitis is caused uh, usually by an impingement syndrome in which the greater tuberosity of the humerus pushes against the coracohumeral ligament, which traps the intervening structures and causes inflammation. This syndrome uh, may be identified by the Hawkins test, in which the patient is examined with the arm at 90 degrees and the elbow flexed to 90 degrees, supported by the examiner to ensure maximal relaxation. The examiner then stabilizes the elbow with their outside hand and with the other holds the patient's arm just proximal to the wrist. The arm is then quickly internally rotated. This test has a sensitivity for detecting impingement of greater than 90%, although it has significantly lower specificity. So that's the Hawkins test. Treatment is typically with physical therapy and specific exercises for this type of thing, as you would expect with any tendonitis. Uh, the wrong choice of a chromoclavicular joint degeneration, uh, and that was uh, answer uh, A, um, uh, because this is sort of typically associated with trauma, at least in younger patients, or osteoarthritis in older patients. Uh, palpable osteophytes may be present on radiographs, if you even get those. 
Um, and the acromoclavicular joint degeneration characteristically presents with pain that occurs with shoulder adduction, so adduction, and abduction above 120 degrees. This diagnosis is unlikely in this patient given that she has no history of trauma and that there is no acromoclavicular joint tenderness on exam. Uh, adhesive capsulitis was also a wrong answer. This is caused by thickening of the capsule surrounding the glenohumeral joint. Uh, so adhesive capsulitis is characterized by loss of both passive and active range of motion in multiple planes and patient reported stiffness, which are not present in this patient. Also, the pain is typically slow in onset and is located near the insertion of the deltoid muscle. And finally, rotator cuff tears, which are very, very important for you to know about, are usually accompanied by weakness and loss of function. Examination findings include supraspinatus muscle weakness, weakness with external rotation, and a positive drop arm test. The absence of weakness and the negative drop arm test here argue against the presence of a rotator cuff tear in this patient. So key points for this question, or key point, rotator cuff impingement syndrome due to underlying tendonitis is a common cause of non-traumatic shoulder pain. Characteristic findings are pain with arm abduction and a positive Hawkins test. And again, just to review the Hawkins test, uh, that is uh, done where the patient is examined with the arm at 90 degrees and the elbow flexed to 90 degrees and supported by the examiner to ensure maximal relaxation. The examiner then stabilizes the elbow with their outside hand and with the other holds the patient's arm just proximal to the wrist. The arm is then quickly internally rotated. This test has a sensitivity for detecting impingement of more than 90%, but is much less specific for uh, rotator cuff impingement syndrome. Question number eight. A 29-year-old man is evaluated for a one-day history of left shoulder pain. He was throwing a football when the pain began. The pain is located over the left lateral deltoid muscle and is associated with weakness with arm abduction. The patient has no previous history of shoulder problems and no history of trauma. He has been taking ibuprofen as needed for pain. On physical examination, temperature is normal. Blood pressure is 126 over 80 millimeters of mercury and pulse rate is 96 per minute. There is pain in the left shoulder with active abduction beginning at approximately 60 degrees, and he has difficulty actively abducting the left arm beyond 60 degrees. The patient is unable to slowly lower his left arm to his waist, which is a so-called positive drop arm test. Strength, other than during abduction, is intact. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, magnetic resonance imaging of the left shoulder. B, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug therapy. C, physical therapy. Or D, subacromial glucocorticoid injection. <clears throat> so uh, the goal in this uh, particular question was uh, to see if you could manage a suspected rotator cuff tear. So the answer here is A. Uh, this patient most likely has a complete left supraspinatus rotator cuff tear and should undergo MRI of the left shoulder to confirm the diagnosis. And this uh, positive drop arm test is most supportive of a complete tear, but we'll come to that in a moment. The diagnosis is uh, suggested by its difficulty abducting the left arm and the positive drop arm test. The drop arm test can be performed by the examiner passively, 
passively that is, abducting the patient's arm and then having the patient slowly lower the arm to the waist. When a complete supraspinatus tear is present, the patient's arm often drops to the waist, thus getting its name the positive drop arm test. Although imaging is not necessary in most patients with uncomplicated shoulder pain because of this patient's high likelihood of having a complete supraspinatus tear based on the history and the examination findings, it's appropriate to obtain an MRI to confirm the diagnosis and figure out whether he needs surgery or not. MRI has a high sensitivity of 98% and a specificity of about 79% in the diagnosis of rotator cuff tears. You can also use shoulder ultrasonography. Um, it's definitely an option if you have it at your medical center. We do at UC Davis uh, in the Sports Medicine Center with Dr. Kevin Burnham. Not all rotator cuff tears require surgical intervention, and many respond to conservative therapy. However, you know, in this case, establishing the diagnosis and obtaining more detailed anatomic information are necessary in deciding whether surgery is indicated or not. Um, so medication with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug would almost certainly be part of your treatment plan in this patient, but a confirmed diagnosis is necessary to make definitive treatment decisions. So this is not that this is a wrong answer, but it's not the best correct answer. Although uh, referral to physical therapy is appropriate for patients with suspected or confirmed incomplete rotator cuff tears, it would not be the appropriate first step for this patient with a suspected complete tear who is young and has no other medical comorbidities. And finally, in terms of the uh, question um, D, they asked about subacromial glucocorticoid injection. Uh, this is not the most appropriate option in this patient with suspected complete supraspinatus rotator cuff tear. Um, these uh, injections have been shown to provide pain relief that lasts up to nine months in patients with rotator cuff tendinitis or an impingement syndrome as described in the previous question, but a significant tear may require surgical intervention and this should be determined uh, as, an, uh, as an initial step in management, not uh, injected with glucocorticoids. So the key point in this question is that imaging studies are appropriate to further evaluate a likely rotator cuff tear as suggested by the history and the physical examination findings. Question number nine. An 83-year-old man is evaluated for poorly controlled pain from osteoarthritis of the left knee. Osteoarthritis was diagnosed 15 years ago, and his pain had been controlled until recently with regular doses of acetaminophen. Over the past eight weeks, acetaminophen has no longer provided relief. There is no history of trauma, and he does not have fever or chills. Medical history is significant for hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and a healed peptic ulcer. Medications are amlodipine and metoprolol. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Blood body mass index is 26. The left knee has a moderate-sized, blottable effusion without overlying erythema or warmth. There is crepitus with knee flexion and extension. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? A. Arthrocentesis in intraarticular glucocorticoid injection. B. Celecoxib. C. Diclofenac. RD, glucosamine, sulfate, and chondroitin. I will give you a moment to contemplate the answer to that one. So the most appropriate treatment at this time in this particular patient is arthrocentesis followed by an intraarticular glucocorticoid injection. 
In patients with osteoarthritis in whom a single joint or several joints cause pain that is disproportionate to pain in other joints and limits function, intra and articular glucocorticoids may be effective in providing pain relief and improving function. And so the degree and duration of the pain relief can vary quite a bit from patient to patient. Um, and there's not really a good method for identifying who might resp- re- respond well to this therapy, so you just kind of have to try it and see what happens. Uh, successful injections provide pain relief for an average of about three months, in case you're wondering. The side effects you would explain to the patient potentially are um, that the injection can cause pain uh, where the needle is inserted, bleeding uh, around where the needle is injected or in the joint, and infection, which is highly unusual. These should be discussed with the patient. So potential long-term risks from repeated injections uh, include atrophy of the cartilage. So the general recommendation says that you shouldn't have more than three injections per year in a single joint in a patient. Um, Then uh, in uh, intra-articular injection may be particularly useful in patients who obtain no relief from acetaminophen and have no, con- uh, ha- or I should say, have contraindications to the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, such as this patient. And you probably noted in his past medical history, he had chronic kidney disease, so that kind of rules out non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. He has hypertension, so you can't really use NSAIDs supposedly in that situation. And he has a history of peptic ulcer disease. So again, NSAIDs would not be a good choice. So uh, the um, uh, uh, selection uh, B was uh, celecoxib. That's a cyclooxygenase 2 specific inhibitor. And it probably decreases the risk of gastrointestinal side effects, including gastrointestinal bleeding, but it has similar effects on the kidney and the blood pressure, uh, as does non-steroidals, and should therefore be avoided in this patient. Um, Diclofenac is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, which you probably may or may not know, and should be avoided in this patient for multiple reasons, including the advanced kidney disease, hypertension, and distant history of peptic ulcer disease. if you have a younger patient who's having some pain from osteoarthritis, NSAIDs are a very reasonable second-line treatment if acetaminophen has failed to provide relief. But the most evidence-based approach is to start with acetaminophen, assuming there are no contraindications to that. And finally, uh, regarding uh, glucosamine sulfate and chondroitin, there was a 2010 meta-analysis of the effects of these drugs, and the combination of the two or alone um, were no more effective than placebo in controlling knee or hip pain due to osteoarthritis. So key point in this question, in patients with osteoarthritis in whom a single joint or severe joints cause pain that is disproportionate to pain in other joints and limits function, intra-articular glucocorticoid injections may be effective in providing relief and improving function. Question number 10, a 69-year-old woman is evaluated for pain in her thumbs for the past three months, with the right being worse than the left. She describes the pain as a dull ache at the base of her thumbs. The pain is most pronounced early in the morning, improves after she has been up and active for about 20 minutes, and recurs with repetitive use of her hands later in the day. She does not have swelling, fever, chills, or any other symptoms. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. There is tenderness at the base of both thumbs to palpation. Her left thumb is shown in plate 27, uh, and you probably don't have the book in front of you. And if you do, you can refer to plate 27. But what it shows is actually a squaring off 
uh, at the base of the thumb, which is classic for a particular disease that we will come to. So which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? D. curvain tenosynovitis, ganglion cyst, osteoarthritis, or rheumatoid arthritis? And I'm truly hoping that you nailed this question. The most likely diagnosis is osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis, and the incidence does increase with age. This particular patient is uh, 69 years old. Uh, common sites for osteoarthritis in the hand include the first metacarpal, uh, uh, sorry, carpometacarpal joint, which is at the base of the thumb, as well as the distal and proximal interphalangeal joints. Involvement of the carpometacarpal joint leads to squaring of the contour of the joint, as seen in the image in this question. Systemic symptoms are generally absent in patients with osteoarthritis. Uh, and these patients with osteoarthritis, as uh, has been related to you previously in other questions in this book, um, have morning joint stiffness that per persists for less than 30 minutes, whereas patients with inflammatory arthritis generally have a longer duration of morning stiffness. With osteoarthritis, they tend to get worse later in the day as they use the joints that are involved with osteoarthritis. Uh, regarding... Um, Answer uh, A, decurvain, rather, tenus inhibitus. Uh, that's caused by inflammation of the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis tendons in the thumb. It's usually associated with repetitive use of the thumb, but it's also uh, quite common in things like pregnancy, rheumatoid arthritis, and calcium appetite deposition disease. So the typical presentation you should look out for in patients and on test questions is uh, that the pain is at the radial aspect of the wrist and occurs when the thumb is used to pinch or grasp. Examination findings include localized tenderness over the distal portion of the radial styloid process and pain with resisted thumb abduction and extension. The patient's findings in this question are not consistent with decurvain tenosynovitis. Uh, the next uh, choice, uh, B, was uh, ganglion cyst. Uh, ganglion cysts are swellings that overlie either joints or tendons, uh, which most typically occur on the dorsal surface and develop as a result of chronic irritation of the wrist. If the cyst is not painful, no intervention is required. Uh, ganglion cysts would not explain this patient's symptoms at the base of the thumb, nor the squaring of the, uh, the first carpometacarpal joint as seen in the image in the book. And finally, uh, the other choice, uh, choice D, was rheumatoid arthritis. Now, keep in mind, it's an inflammatory arthritis that typically causes symmetric inflammatory joint inflammation, uh, and it usually involves the proximal interphalangeal joints and the metacarpophalangeal joints. Uh, and though rheumatoid arthritis is more common in women than men, uh, patients tend to present at a younger age than this woman who is 69 years of age in this question. Um, they would also have a longer duration of morning stiffness that can be over an hour, as well as sign, objective signs of inflammation, which would be synovitis, synovitis uh, you know, warm joints, swollen joints, uh, which are absent in this patient. Squaring of the first metacarpal uh, sorry, carpometacarpal joint is not characteristic of rheumatoid arthritis, so that's against the diagnosis as well. So really, in this question, they're uh, trying to help you differentiate between a 
non-inflammatory and inflammatory type arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis, as well as some other things that I think logic would dictate this was not, such as a ganglion cyst or decurvain tenosynovitis. So key point, pain, stiffness, and squaring of the first carpometacarpal joint, which is the base of the thumb, are common manifestations of osteoarthritis of the hand. And I'll be back soon with the next five questions for the rheumatology section of Internal Medicine Essentials. Thank you.